Sir Robert T. Jones on having won not only the amateur championship at St. Andrews, but being here amongst us this evening as winner of the British Open Championship. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. Thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever as long as, as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Talking Golf History, the show that brings the past into the present and tries to figure out what it might all mean for the future. I'm Rod Murray, and, what I, and after what can only be described as a controversial episode three, we're changing pace just a little bit this week to something a little more light-hearted. That's not because we're afraid of controversy or differing opinions, mind you. It's because the whole point of this podcast is to make golf history interesting and entertaining and fun for those who might not have ever thought about it in that way before. More about what's coming up on today's show in just a moment. But first homework and well done to all of you who posted questions on twitter using the tg history hashtag we'll be getting to some of those later in the episode but a thanks to all those who took the time to submit them to those who sent a question without using the hashtag consider this your first and only warning i just of course but the hashtag is a guaranteed way to make sure that we see what it is that you've asked us if you don't use the hashtag we can't see the questions Therefore, we can't answer them. So it is important to try and remember that. Hashtag TG History. It also makes us very popular on Twitter. And that can't be a bad thing. Don't forget, you can also email feedback and questions to history at talkandgolf.com. Just the one G in Talk and Golf. I'll put a link to that email address in the show notes. That's an easy way to get in touch as well. Now, lastly, for those of you who may not have realized it, this history show is just part of a little network of podcasts that we've set up. Uh, you can find them all at www.talkandgolf.com. Just the one G in Talk and Golf. That's the calling card, just the one G. Not only is there this show, but there's State of the Game, which I host with Jeff Shackleford and Mike Clayton, uh, as well as the always fascinating Feed the Ball show with Derek Duncan. If you're into golf course architecture, that is a must. Listen, good friend and former caddy turned golf writer and TV commentator Bruce Young does a little betting guide each week for those who like a flutter. And I'm also thinking of adding another interview show at some point in the future, not too distant perhaps, making use of the extraordinary talents of the likes of John Huggins, so you don't have to listen to me drone on all the time. However, what all of that means is that for the next couple of episodes, I have to plug a little project we're working on for State of the Game, which is a golf course study tour to the outstanding Barn Boogle Dunes facility in Tasmania with myself and Mike Clayton. You'll get to play several holes each day with Mike, as well as be part of a special recording of the State of the Game podcast, where you get to ask Mike whatever you want to ask him about any area of golf, course architecture, playing the game for a living, anything else you can think of. This might be the thing that I'm looking forward to most in 2019, even more so than the majors. Another controversial majors take. There you go. Uh, if that's the sort of thing that interests you, head to the State of the Game website at stateofthegame.fireside.fm and click the course study tours tab or you can link straight to the brochure for the trip in the show notes for this episode. Right, enough about all that. Let's get on with today's show. And to do that, I'll start by making wel welcome co-host and brains of the operation, Connor Lewis. Connor, great to be chatting again. Are you planning to upset anybody today like you did on the last episode? What a response we got to that. Well, we may have some... Uh former USGA and RNA rules officials from the 1700s, at least from the RNA, uh, doing some role, rolling in the graves, I suppose. 
Yes, a few people, not not to avoid it, there are a couple of people, one in particular, who took issue with lots of things that we talked about on the pod last week. What would you say to people who, they got quite, a, some people got quite offended by the notion of the majors, some of the majors not being majors prior to 1960. They're just opinions, aren't they, Connor, that we were sort of fleshing out and giving reasons why we might have thought that. Yeah, actually, I would argue that all debate is good debate in yeah. this, on this subject. And I would say the more heated, the more you care. And quite frankly, um, you know, the only thing that I ask when we debate is we do so in uh, civilly as, yeah, in a, in a very civil manner. That's, that's all I request. And, and as I put there, I think later in Twitter that evening, um, if it makes everyone feel better, no one is going to take away any majors <laughs> and no one's going to give you any majors. So it really doesn't matter in the scheme of things. We just want you to think about the history of the game of golf and how just challenge you perhaps a little bit. Indeed. And Jeff, thank you for taking the time to go and hunt down all the stuff that you, Jeff, Jeff, Jeffy, Jeffy golf. I think Jeff, go Jeff, Jeffy Martin, golf. Think, yeah. Jeffy golf. A lot of information. Yeah. And really actually appreciate you taking the time. Don't agree with a lot of what you said, uh, but really appreciate you taking the time. And that is in fact, uh, what's important in this whole history discussion. Let's move on. Connor, I don't think there'll be a whole lot of controversy in this week's episode, but maybe because this week, <laughs> the first episode we talked about the wise of golf. This week we're going to talk about the rules of golf and in particular some of the weird and wonderful rules of golf. I suppose the controversy comes in, Connor, because much of this stuff we started to think about in light of some recent controversies. Let's start with Matt Kucha and Caddy Gate from Mexico last year. This story broke probably a month ago, I think. Uh, had Twitter in a meltdown as things tend to do for quite a while. Apparently underpaid his caddy in Mexico. Let's not go into all the details of that. I suppose the point is, this isn't the first time that a player has either been accused of or in fact has been cheap with a caddy, is it? There's a, there's a form line here for pro golfers over the years. Yes, I have a history that actually goes back before the United States was independent of the United Kingdom. Wow. Uh, to go back a little further, let's just start with uh, the first known caddy. So in the research for this, you know, I kind of dig into a deep dive and uh, come across some interesting things like I normally do. Uh, the first known caddy uh, was actually uh, named in 1681 was Andrew Dixon, Good uh, who Andrew. happened at caddy for the Duke of York. Uh, in 19, or, I'm sorry, 1681 at Leith Links. Also in 1682 for uh, the Duke of York as well as John Patterson, who won the famous Scotland versus English match, uh, which go. determined uh, who invented golf, who owned the rights <laughs> to the game of golf. Unfortunately, Patterson took his winnings and built a massive house at Leith Links. And uh, actually from that, if you follow uh, some of the mottos of Clubs in the UK, as well as Chicago Golf Club, Far Insure, also used by uh, young and old Tom before they uh, teed off every time. Uh, Far Insure actually was on the uh, building of John Patterson's wow. house. Lovely. Yeah, a little history before that. So, so yeah, getting so, back to the so, cheap. Yeah, is is Andrew Dixon, can we class him as a tour caddy? This was the debate about L2 can, wasn't he? Was he a tour caddy? Did he deserve the full? Is Dixon the first tour caddy two years in a row and in big uh, matches? Yeah, to, I'll give you that. Um, I think everybody in the world would say no at no. that time. He was probably considered just a level bit better than maybe a beggar. Uh -huh. And he was likely considered a drunk, even though we I don't know if he drank, but that was the general Jim thought of a caddy back yeah. in the day. Indeed. Sorry, so I getting back to, No, no, it's all right. Getting back to the um, Matt Kuchar controversy and perhaps him coming off a little cheap, 
I have uh, two rules from Brunsfield Links 1773 that I thought were uh, adequate for this discussion, and they are as such. No member of the society shall pay a caddy more than one penny. That's the first rule. Right. The second rule may be as good. It is against the rules to give an old golf ball to a caddy. If caught, you will incur a fine of six pence per ball. <laughs> now, to give you a little perspective, by the way, uh, featheries were quite expensive. Featheries, this is the era of the feathery ball, which uh, for you folks out in podcast land, uh, was a leather ball stuffed with goose feathers. Uh, quite dangerous to make. A great maker might be able to make three to five balls a day. Wow. There'd be three makers in a hole or in a shop, so you'd have essentially maybe fifteen balls a day that were made. And a gut, a feathery ball w- could often cost as much as a brand new driver. Mm-hmm. So they were worth their weight in gold. And apparently, the Brunsville Links Society wanted uh, the caddies to stay away from their golf balls. Stay off my, stay away from my balls. Get I suppose off. you yeah. could say. Get off my lawn, I think, is a nice way Get of making the same point. Yes, indeed. Th- those pay rates that you mentioned there, and sorry, just back up a sp- – I know I told you to get closer to the mic, Connor. That was my fault. Yeah, okay. started there. Just back a little yeah. bit. We're getting How's a bit, couple of pay- – no, it's perfect. Um, just getting a couple of plosives. Those pay rates that you mentioned, how cheap were they in, in relative terms to today? How Forgetting about the balls, obviously the, the ball is worth a lot of money, but the, the penny – the penny payment for a round, how cheap is that for the time? That is pretty cheap, even by today's standards. Mm-hmm. Even if you use inflation, that is extremely cheap. Right. It's, it's, I would say, just under a living wage okay. for that time. Okay. So, Caddy, so again, second-class citizen. were thought of, yeah. Yeah, oh, second or even third-class citizen. Right. Okay. Uh, and there are some people who still to this day uh, tend to underplay the role of the Caddy in what's a much different, uh, much different game. Do we know... Was it was Dixon the first record of a caddy, or is he the first caddy we know of who perhaps got paid to do it? Do we know when no. caddies became a thing? Well, there is a record, obviously, before that in the 1500s, uh, and that is Mary, Queen of Scots, mm-hmm. using a cadet, hence caddy. That's where that term comes from. Okay. Uh, she was also one of the first fe- – or she was – or the first known female golfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she used a French cadet to – carry her clubs there weren't golf bags back then a look for golf balls etc and the uh catchy term caddy is likely derived from cadet okay so technically uh that would be the first caddy or the first mention of the word caddy but we did not have that poor cadet's name we do however have andrew dixon's right okay it's uh, been an integral part of the game then for caddies for well almost since the game's beginnings by the sound of it really Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. There you go. And uh, and as we say, often often undervalued, even in this day and age by some, although there are some who have done very nicely out of the game also. Thank you very much. Uh, are we done with caddies? Yeah. Other I, The only uh, rebuttal I'll give you is so, the caddies are some of the best people and have, by the way, folks, have the best stories of all time. Oh, if you are ever have a caddy out on the golf course, uh, always take a chance and ask them what was the first – what was the worst loop you ever had uh-huh. with a with a golfer? And, and the stories will entertain you for days. In fact, my favorite golf joke is a caddy joke. When a player says to a caddy after missing another green, you must be the worst caddy in the world. And the caddy says to him, that, sir, would be too much of a coincidence. <laughs> That's right. That's a good one. <laughs> Which yeah. might be That's my good. favorite of all time. Is It's clean and it uh, makes the point beautifully. I guess uh, sticking with the theme of controversies and their relationship to the rules, slow play, uh, probably not a new thing. J.B. Holmes, obviously the poster child of recent times for slow play, just really continuing along tradition, though. Oh, isn't he, Connor? 
a very long tradition. Uh, we're going to go with two stories here uh, of, from the archives of slow play. Uh, the first one is that I'm going to go out of chronological order because the second story is so much better. But uh, the first one comes from actually a, a major championship, unless you talk to Bill uh, Williams. <laughs> it's the 1955 PGA Championship, which was part of the match play era. It was a major in my book for the <laughs> for the record. It is not in Bill. So all the folks on Twitter realize PGA major Connor's book, not Bill's. So sometimes I get pulled into that still like trying to defend it. So anyway, um, one of my favorite stories, 1955, it was the final round of the match play PGA championship on the line. You had Doug Ford facing off against Kerry Middlecoff. Now Doug Ford was known at that time as being a very fast paced golfer, Kerry Middlecoff on the opposite side of the spectrum. So I don't know. I don't, I'd like to think this was kind of a Walter Hagen-esque uh, match play uh, Games uh, mind game. Right. Mind, yeah. So Ford, well aware of his situation and well aware of the slow playing middle cough, had his son carry a lawn chair along with him <laughs> so that he could sit between waiting for Kerry Middlecoff to hit his shots. <laughs> this is true. And – it won the day, by the way, and Ford won four and three wow. to become the 1955 PGA Championship major winner, Bill. Major <laughs> winner. That's fair. <laughs> that is fantastic. I wonder how that would have been viewed at the time. How would have officials responded to that? If you were a rules official, what would you? I wonder if you'd be concerned about it, whether you might go and have a word. I don't suppose there's anything in the rules against it, is there? No, there weren't at the time. And then I think the other thing you had going for you is we hadn't entered the t- the age of television. Right. So. so, I mean, Arnold Palmer doing this in 1962, yeah. I think that would be squashed in a second. However, I don't think Arnold would ever do that. But no, no, no. to that point, yeah, understood. Uh, I think great gamesmanship fantastic. Uh, might be the best gamesmanship of all time as a hurry up and wait. Yeah, that's kind of, I'm going to sit my chair with my legs crossed waiting for you. <laughs> Wonderful. But stuff. it's nowhere near the next story. OK. Uh, I, this I have a lot of favorite stories, but when it comes to slow play, I dare anyone to beat this story. So this takes place at the 1929 L.A. Open. And uh, the culprit here is the 1924 U.S. Open winner, Cyril Walker, who was probably and could be one of the slowest golfers of all time. Mm -hmm. Now, how slow was he? That's the ultimate question you get right after that. Uh, Many PGA Tour players refused to play with Cyril. Oh, really? And in many and in many tournaments, this is my favorite, when, no matter where he was in scoring position, they often put him in the last pairing for every round because he would slow down that many players. And how bad was it even beyond that? <laughs> beyond that, he was so slow that players on the tour would protest and refuse playing with him. So more often than not, he would play four rounds by himself with a marker. Wow. So now, beat that J.B. Holmes. And that's man. not even my story. That's oh, just okay. a precursor to the story. It just sets it up. Goodness this me. This is the precursor. All right. How so, slow was Cyril Walker? Oh, this is bad. So this is the 1929 LA Open. He's already known as a slow player. Um, I suppose you could look at the LA Open for not knowing what they were going to get into, or maybe they did. Obviously, they had two police officers ready to talk to him immediately. But Cyril, after the fifth hole of the first round of the LA Open, had already slowed down the group. He was multiple holes behind after five holes. And tournament officials knew that Tali was a very difficult person to deal with. Some might say a drunk. He ended his life, by the way. Uh, he died in jail, an alcoholic. Oh. So 
alcohol may have been in play. Um, but he was so bad that tournament officials decided that they had to send two police officers to ask him to speed up. Like they couldn't even go themselves. They sent police officers in and his direct quote in the paper is who the hell are you? I am the U S open champion. I'll play as slow as I damn well, please. Wow. Which is basically, do you know who I am? <laughs> do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's extraordinary. Oh, isn't unreal. It? Yeah. So uh, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah. And that's verbalizing what most people think slow players are essentially saying in the modern era, isn't it? Yeah, they don't verbalize absolutely. it, but it's, I'm a yeah. tour player. I'll play as slow as I want. We're playing for millions. Yeah, and, and, and Cyril had no problem uh, vocalizing that. Wow. So it gets a little worse uh, for Cyril, oh, for, for Mr. Walker more than anything. So at the turn four holes later, he makes the turn and tournament officials with two police officers tell him that he's been disqualified for slow play. Oh, wow. However, should have ended there. Mr. Walker then proceeds to the 10th tee, refusing to stop play, saying, damn it, I traveled all the way to play here. I'm going to keep playing. At this point, the two police officers, according to sources, were told to take care of Walker. And at which time they literally, literally, sources say, picked him off the ground, kicking and screaming and tossed him off the property and told them if he entered the property once again, he would serve time in jail. Wow. So... If you feel a little bit better about JB Holmes, yeah. you're welcome. JB, you got a or long... maybe that's the solution, maybe, right? Maybe get the, get the cops to throw. How did all of that prior to all of that? I'm intrigued by this notion of putting him in the last group. I suppose, of course, back at that time, you didn't have the seeded pairings that we're so used to today, did you? So it didn't matter whether you were leading the tournament or running last. That didn't dictate what time you started. And often they played 36 holes on a Saturday, if I recall. Absolutely. So, we, so we didn't have that seeded. So it was possible to take a leader, for example, and send him off in the last group by himself with a marker exactly and again that kind of goes back to the pre-television era yeah um you know bobby jones when he won the 1930 um u.s open in interlock and was not the last player on the field when they finished play yeah Yeah. Uh, really the tv era kicked in and you know obviously you want to see the leaders as they finish you want to know where they stand so i think it kind of kicked off from there but again my favorite one of my favorite stories amazing you know poor cyril walker getting uh kicked off and literally drugged from the property. Removed from the off. property physically. Oh, but just, goodness me. What a, but what a what, – no wonder people didn't want to play with him. What a belligerent golfer by the sound of it. Two police tell yeah. you that you that's it, you're out of the time. You say, no, 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 I'm going to continue playing. Yeah. That's a hell of an attitude, I paid. I'm playing. Pay, that's oh, like a bad resort guest, isn't it, who are taking right? seven right. hours so to get around. Good. I paid my money. So good. I'll play as slow as I want. I wonder how that would go down. If you, all those tour players who might be listening, I don't think there's many, but next time you get stuck behind a slow player – uh, give that some thought. You'll probably feel better about things. Probably the biggest <laughs> controversy we've seen this year, Connor, has been backstopping. And partly it feels like yeah. the biggest because it just happened last week, the incident between Aria Jatanagan and uh, Amy Olsen. Let's not talk about the specifics of that. Uh, let's talk about what the rules used to be like. Because, of course, until about 1956, backstopping was almost mandatory in a roundabout way, wasn't it? What, what used to govern the rules of the ball on the putting green and when and where you could touch it? You bet. So uh, backstopping was, in fact, the norm, and for good reason, at least until 1956. Uh, Players uh, were allowed at that point in 1956 to mark and pick up your ball. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, the rule essentially was extremely uh, strict unless you had a ball out of play or it was in a water or you were taking a drop. And essentially the rules from the genesis of golf until 1956 essentially said uh, you cannot you can touch your ball twice. I'm paraphrasing here and, and putting mm-hmm. it a little, make it a little easier to understand. But you can touch your ball when you tee it up, 
and you can touch your ball again when you pull it from the hole. And it was as simple as that. So uh, there were effects, the stymie rule, which we'll get into in a second. So in 1952, there was, in fact, a rule allowing for players to pick up the ball if it could assist your competitor. But the only difference is there was still an element of choice. So you didn't have to. So as I, I, I alluded to and kind of made the joke that um, earlier on Twitter either this week, I, I wrote that um, getting ready for this podcast that Ben Hogan was the king of the backstoppers. It was, uh-huh. Now, that's just deliberately you know, mischief making on your no, part. No, just it? trying to upset yeah. people, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, especially when they're getting into the hot debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, those were the rules in play. Now, uh, I got into the stymie rule. Uh, the holdover for that was the subs- subsequent ty- stymie rule. Uh, which was a direct descendant of the first rules of golf. And essentially that meant uh, if my ball and your ball were both on the green, unless they were six inches from each other, you had to play around that ball. Around or over or whatever. Around or over. Was, so was interesting enough, I'm going to give you a little uh, asterisk. Um, one of my favorite little quirky little facts about the rules. So in 1956, you are now allowed to mark and pick up your ball on the green, mm-hmm. right? However, this is 1956. Not until four years later, so from 1956 through 1960, you could mark and pick up your ball, but you could not clean it. Oh, wow. Even on the ground. And I, I have played in tournaments where we allowed that. We went back to like 1956 rules, mm-hmm. and I cannot tell you how hard <laughs> it is not to clean a golf ball yeah. that you've picked off the green. It's, habit, it's, it's near impossible. Yeah, it's a habit, isn't it? You see it very occasionally in the rules in play today, don't you? If a, if a player has to mark his ball to allow another player to hit out of a bunker or something, pick it up and hold it between two fingers because you're not allowed to clean it. The habit, of yeah. course, is to just grab it straight away, isn't it? Yeah. Rub yeah, it on your pants clean- or throw it in a towel, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, quite uh, quite incredible. Just quickly explain the stymie rule. So basically two balls are on the green. One's between the hole and the ball that's furthest from the hole. You had to find a way around it yourself. There, there was no alternative for you couldn't mark, you couldn't line up a ball, you just had to play the ball where it lay. So you might take a wedge or something, try and loft it over into the hole. That was the rules of the game yeah. for far longer than we've had marking on the greens, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think how this went down. So I'm trying to think of the actual context. So the stymie rule essentially had a if you had your scorecard, if you find an old scorecard, even from like the 1950s, a lot of them have a stymie measurement on the side of the card, which is a six inch measurement. Uh-huh. So if the balls were uh, inside of six inches, you could ask your competitor to lift and ah, clean and, and to place. mark his ball. Right. Okay. Right. Or lift. Actually, you couldn't clean the ball at the time, of course, because I just went into that. But you could lift it and I could put around. There was, and I don't have the year here, there was a, I think, a year period or a couple year period where you could essentially uh, gift the putt, the next putt to your component or in to a, your opponent. In a stroke play, then right in Yours is good. Yep. Yours is good. I'm going to putt. Uh, that did not last very long. I think it was a year or less than a year that that was in play. In stroke uh, play? In stroke play. So at the U.S. So, Open, Jordan Spieth yeah. could say to Justin Thomas, pick that up. Yeah, it was prior. If I recall, it was prior wow. to the U.S. Open, and it may have been prior to the okay. uh, Open Championship. Right. So okay. again, I'm kind of going off the top of my head yeah, yeah, no, a little that's, bit. That's remember, fascinating. That's and, and I'll give you um, at the end of the podcast, I'll give you a couple of places where uh, folks at home can look it up yep. and even go, do a deeper dive into this. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, just the last thing on that sort of back something: when you weren't allowed to mark your ball, if we had exactly the same situation that unfolded the other day with Olsen and Jatanagan, Aria gets to put her ball back to where it lay before it was hit by Olsen's ball. Was that the case 
back in this time? Did you get to replace ball? Did you have to play it from wherever it happened to have finished? No, you would you'd get to replace. You get to replace it. Okay, so that's yeah. always been. Uh, but I think you had Rod. We were talking before the show. Um, a great way to stop po- uh, uh, the backstopping. Why don't you jump into that? That suggestion. I thought that was pretty good. I, I won't claim it as my own. Many have said it before, but I really do think that the simplest way to stop any potential backstopping is the ball that gets hit has to be played from wherever it finishes. And that that would do it. That would be it. <laughs> there is not a player on any tour that's going to leave their ball, if it's feasible to do so, uh, he's going to leave their ball there when, in fact, you know, marking it is the, the more sensible thing to do. No doubt, like everything in the rules of golf, Connor, as soon as you implement it, We'll discover all the things that are wrong with it that we oh, didn't think so of true. at first, but um, that does Listen, seem to me a fairly simple, straightforward I mean, way. Everyone is quick to attack the USGA and the RNA on no, these things. Not as and easy as it The only thing I tell people is, you know what? They're doing the best. They can. They've been I at mean, it for 600 years. Uh, it kind of tells you that it's maybe harder than no. it looks from the outside. And I, I, and I think we're showing today with some of these rules that we're going to be going through and the ones I've touched on already mm-hmm. that it's a work in progress. Yeah, of course it is. You, course you it come is. across a rule and it seems like a pretty logical one. And we view it now with uh, the eyeglass of history past. And some of them seem downright silly. Yeah. All rule systems are imperfect, Connor. you just got to pick the imperfect one that you want to go with at any given time. <laughs> so I think so that true. might be the... Now, speaking of imperfect, now, of all the rule changes that came in at the start of this year, the one that most people seem to find the most offensive or the silliest is the drop from the knee. Now, the dropping procedure, whilst the top is a fairly modern construct, I suspect, it's always been a bit of an odd one, hasn't it? I mean, we had dropping over the shoulder, we had the dropping from shoulder height, we've had now got dropping from the knee, those who campaign for placing. What's a little bit of the history of, of, of when the ball does need to be picked up and dropped what's some of the history of some of the ways that's been dealt with over time yeah i i I tell you what i'm trying to decide if we should do this in chronological or not i'm going to go chronological because the first way to drop is by far my favorite it was in rule uh it was a rule from 1776 to 1850 um there are a couple pieces to it that i think are are um really neat and and i'll go into the the second part right after i hit this but uh a drop from a hazard uh, so this is a drop from a hazard. A drop from a hazard Penalty entailed area. entailed throwing the ball over your head, not dropping it, throwing the ball over your head, and the ball had to fly at least six yards backwards. Hang on a minute. So you would stand and face the <laughs> penalty area. And yeah, I'm, I'm, face, I'm, I'm standing with the ball in hand looking at the green, right? So I'm, I'm right at oh, the point where my ball entered the hazard. Right. I'm taking the ball in front of me. Chucking it over my head, yeah. and the ball had to go at least six yards. So someone's got to referee the six yards also, obviously. Do you mark where you're standing? Right. Do you mark a six-yard? But that's almost an Olympic sport, isn't it? Blind six-yard throwing? Because the closer fantastic. to six yards you can get, the, the greater the – if it doesn't oh, right. if it doesn't go six great. yards, do you chuck it again? No, you throw it in the hazard, and you take the penalty, and you do it again. Wow. That's However, extreme. this this is even better to me, to me anyway. So um, the question comes to why you're dropping. So – uh, from 17, in 1744, players could take free relief, free relief, no stroke penalty, from a trench, ditch, or dike if they hit their next shot with an iron. If they used a wood, they would incur a one-stroke penalty. Oh, back up, back up, back up. But yeah. How does this make any sense? What is it the thinking with that? It makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world. So you have to put yourself in the place of a player in 1744. So here we are, we're playing with, let's say, six wooden clubs and maybe 
two archaic irons that look like they could kill you. So uh, if you look at on Twitter, folks, if you looked at um, the Troon Clubs, uh, if you're on Facebook, same thing. If you're on Instagram, I believe I post them there as well. You look at the oldest set of golf clubs known in the world, the Troon Clubs. They consisted of four woods of many different lofts. There was a, a niblick wood, which was essentially 50 degrees, but it was a wood. And you had these two hacking clubs, essentially, is what they were. You're playing with a ball that's made of leather. It's stuffed with goose feathers. And the issue is this hacking club was not unlike 100 years later the rut iron. Mm-hmm. It was a treble club. It was not really meant to advance the club or the ball that far. And it was essentially for trouble areas. So – what would happen is I'm throwing the ball over my head, right? Mm-hmm. I'm now set up. I'm going to get a free stroke. I'm going to hit it with an iron. And the iron being just a very rustic uh, steel instrument, iron instrument, it would probably be the equivalent of a half-stroke penalty. Right. You're not going to hit that ball more than 30 or 40 yards. Okay. Whereas if you take the one-stroke penalty, you have a good lie you're hitting oh. essentially a, a, a spoon. Brassies didn't exist back then. And you're hitting a, a baffy spoon back into play, and you're picking up maybe 150 yards over the 30 to 50 yards you might get with an iron. Interesting. So, so you really, so it's funny, but then you look at it, and it kind of makes sense. It's kind of a half-stroke penalty. That's a strategic decision, isn't it, as to yeah, whereabouts you yeah. are in relation to the hole, how good you might be with one of those iron? Because I imagine they've also got a propensity to go – Anywhere except where you're aiming. Or break the ball. <laughs> I would think. Or break the or, ball. Or break right? the ball. That's right. Yeah, the ball right. just cut it into. And there's some <laughs> some interesting rules covering the broken ball too, isn't there? Yeah, there uh, are. From back in time. I'll get you to run through those in a minute. How long did that that sort of rule last for? Because obviously there becomes a time where that's unfeasible, where the iron clubs are better and more common and there's more people carrying them. And then obviously it becomes the rule that makes us laugh in the modern era. How long did that rule last yeah. for, Connor? Uh, it looks like 30 years, but okay. I didn't do a real deep dive. No, I was kind okay. of hitting the, the, you know, the perspective of that seemingly weird rule, but when you put it in context, it may make yeah, a little sense. Absolutely. Talk quickly about the, the, the rules governing broken balls. They were a thing in golf, weren't they, for a long time? The ball would break. And how did the absolutely. rules deal with how you would continue if you broke a ball? Yeah, a lot of them were, went down to local rules. So the RNA, when they started enacting rules, would allow you to replace a ball that was broken. But there were many societies – uh, prior to the RNA rules, which would essentially make you play the largest portion of the ball into the hole. So you can imagine you break <laughs> – this is in the gutty era, of course. You wouldn't be doing that with a leather ball. But in the gutty era, you're hitting half or 51% of a ball down the fairway in carding a, a 34. Now, interesting enough, uh, the National Hickory Championship, which is still played today, is the oldest modern gutty championship. Uh, it used to be played at um, Oakhurst Links, which was one of the oldest golf courses in the United States, established in 1884, and held by Pete Georgity. He, they have rental clubs, so if you ever want to do that, I, I'd highly recommend it. But one of the original rules from that was you'd have to play the largest part of the bowl into the hole if it broke on you. And there is a great story of a player playing, uh, I believe it was the second hole at Oakhurst Links, which may have played 320 yards, and I believe he recorded a 22. Wow! Because you know, a half a ball, half how, a ball. How does half a the fair? How does half a ball respond when you whack it with a hickory shafted golf I club? I think it's fair to say not well. <laughs> well, nor, nor reliably, or even predictably, nor reliably. I would suggest. Nor reliably. That's but bizarre. as we're getting into this, get off the ball topic a little bit. I'm going to give you 
my second favorite. We'll jump into the end playable lie rule, which is one of my favorites, okay. old time rule. Yep. But um, one of my favorite rules regarding the drop or relief comes from Royal Burgess. Okay, here it is. I'm going to try to keep a straight face as I go through this. It's not easy. A ball in human or animal dung. (laughs) Human (laughs) dung. Right. That's feces, folks. (laughs) Human or animal feces. This is 1776. I don't know why people are crapping on the course, but a ball, it gets worse, a ball in human or animal dung. You must lift and throw over your head the ball, (laughs) not the dung. (laughs) (laughs) Who's crapping on my golf course? I'm telling you right now, I am not a member of Royal Burgess in 1776. This, this, folks, in America, Uh, this might be why we won the war and became independent. 1776, they are crapping on golf courses in uh, in England and Scotland. So that there is you go. Bizarre, you, it's isn't breaking it? news. A ball in human or animal dung. It's just not a ball in dung. It's human <laughs> or animal dung. And then my favorite is lift and throw over your head yeah. the ball, not the dung. Oh, so it actually yeah. says the ball, not no, the dung in the rules. Or is it that says, yours? It says lift and throw over your right, head. Okay, the, assumption, gonna... <laughs> the assumption was the ball. Right. I thought I'd add a little bit more clarity by saying the ball, not the dung. Now, you've got to wonder about the origin. At some point, clearly, somebody's ball has landed in human feces, and they've thought, better come up with a way to to deal with that. That's bizarre. I'll I'll bet you six pence from the uh, the penalty I incurred giving a golf ball away that one of the caddies left some human dung in the fairway. That's no doubt. I'm I'm throwing that out 1776. Dear, oh dear. That's bizarre as well. I know. We don't know how easy – it's not just the equipment that's easier to use. It's the uh, it's the, the course itself that makes more sense. Absolutely. The balls and the clubs themselves, I suppose some of those rules touch on that. But what's been the history of the rules governing those? I can't imagine that in the first 100 years or so did we have anybody saying, look, a club must be of this form or this length or, or was it a free-for-all? How, how did we sort of end up with – because the equipment rules in this day and age are probably A – Amongst the most oh, controversial, absolutely. and B, probably the thickest the thickest part of the the rules book is all the tech specs of what's allowed and what's not. Yeah, I basically call the uh, early days of golf. If we were going to call it, say, the fourteen hundreds, if we assumed uh, golf was in play there, which I think a lot of people do, including historians, uh, I think from fourteen hundred to say nineteen twenty, we are essentially playing in Mad Max Thunderdome. And what I mean by that that there were literally no rules governing the golf ball. Until 1920, size? and there were no rules. No rules about no size. size. You could have, you could be playing with a billiard ball. You could be playing with a ping pong ball. Wow. Balls uh, between holes. You could literally change the ball based on the weight of a ball. Like you'd have a heavy ball in your back pocket. Wow. You'd have a light ball that you were just playing. So there's a winds at your back on one hole. So you'd have the light ball and the winds in your face. So you'd play a heavy ball. All this prior to 1920. Uh, 1920 is essentially Mad Max Thunderdome. Anything goes. Wow. Um, and then golf clubs, very much the same. No rules until 1921. That's so extraordinary, think, I mean, isn't it? It, it, it? I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a long, that's, that's not that long. <laughs> that's 500 years of golf being played with no rules. That's incredible. So I could be playing with a feathery ball. I could be playing with, you know, uh, uh, a gutty. I could be playing with a Haskell ball. Uh, ten- I could have grooves. You could play with, could with, a, could play with a tennis ball by the sound of it if you wanted Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Which is, I, I, it's fascinating, absolutely to me. 
And then, so what were the first rules then? That got, what was the first rule about the ball? Was it to do with size or weight? Or yeah. What was the... Uh, I don't have actual size and weight, but yes, the first rules dictated... Um, no bigger the than... parameters for right. size and weight. Okay. So, so the first balls were still uh, from 1920 to 1931. We had a I, what I like to call the small heavy ball. The small right? ball, yeah. uh, So a small heavy ball was in play all during you know Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones uh, era. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. If you thought players hit the ball short with hickory clubs, you are wrong. Hmm. Bobby Jones routinely hit the ball over 300, 300 yards. yards. It yeah. is well documented. Yeah. I have newspaper articles saying, talking about, you know, how do we limit 300-yard drives, mm-hmm. much like we hear today. And these are 1929-1930. Who would have thought, Connor, that the newspaper would die before the ball debate? <laughs> it's extraordinary <laughs> when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, kind of crazy. So the first ball rollback was an utter disaster. Uh, it was 1931. It was called the balloon ball, which is uh, they, they – set the diameter of the golf ball at 1.68 inches and the lightness, they light, they lightened all the way to 1.55 ounce. And what they found was the distance was dropped quite a bit, but also the ball would go all over the place in windy weather. That's right. The wind. Would and go, yeah. essentially that rule was in play until, uh, this is all the USGA, by the way, the RNA was a later adopter to this. They had the small heavy ball for years after, well, but Nicholas um, played with the small heavy ball, didn't he? he, small, he went over there. Yeah. yeah. So the, so uh, up it, these, uh, the balloon ball lasted just about a year, uh, and they increased the weight to the current standard, which is 1.62 ounces. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's so, where we are today, yeah. So. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I mean, it's really interesting because from 19 – I'd say the 1920s to the late 1930s, more changes in the rules um, – than ever before. Obviously, there were none before, so it's pretty drastic. But all of a sudden, they're banning golf clubs. They're, you know, the 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 uh, sand faced or the uh, spoon uh, shaped uh, sand wedge, mm-hmm. Walter Hagen uh, wedge. The, um, you know, they're they're banning left and right. They banned uh, in the 1920s. They banned uh, steel shafts, and then they allowed them. And I mean, it was just kind of a free for all re- overreaction or reaction to. Uh, where they were, you know, that's the 14 club rule ran uh-huh. in right in the mid 1930s. That all came about right in that era. And, and again, a time a bit like what we see now, a really rapid technological sort of expansion and growth. Lots and lots of new products and ideas that weren't considered previously. I can't imagine steel shafted golf clubs could have been a consideration prior to the 1920s. The steel itself would have been unreliable, unpredictable and too heavy. And so it's not possible to have steel shafted golf clubs, I imagine. Uh, there were a couple out the, there, but they were not effective. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, indeed. And it's what we see today, isn't it? The aerodynamics of the golf ball that allow it to go further and stay in the air longer, spin less, yet still maintain uh, longer flight. These are all the sorts of things that we deal with with the rules now. Exactly the same yeah. sets of circumstances. Technology, getting ahead of the game. What's the impact on the game? That's a discussion for... However, what I don't see is any notice from the 1920s about how to handle human dung. No, that's exactly... <laughs> So there were advances. Yeah, that's right. We've, we've at least moved forward. Playing, condi- playing conditions are better in yeah, the 1920s and 30s, I can guarantee you, folks. Very much so. So before we jump on, I'm going to go into uh, two of my favorite rules of all time. Yes, I was going to ask you And that's the unplayable lie rule. Uh, so, again, I think you need to do this. Folks, I don't ever recommend breaking the rules of golf, 
But if you're ever going to break it on your buddies, this is the one. There are two, actually. One's from the RNA in 19, or 1851, and the other one is from Lawyer Royal Liverpool Hoy Lake in the 1870s. And here we are. I'm gonna, same rule, different circumstances. Both are brilliant. So when faced with an unplayable lie on bo- in both cases, with consent of one's opponent, a player can lift and drop behind the troubled area for penalty of one stroke. That sounds very reasonable, Rod, wouldn't very, you say? Yeah, absolutely. It's sensible. If your opponent disagrees, he can take two strokes at your ball to make it playable. If he succeeds, those two strokes would be added to your score and you would play on. That's the RNA 1850. I'm sorry, folks, that needs to come back into play. Uh, very much. I, l- I love that rule. That's a str- so, again, it's a strategic rule, isn't it? Do I think I can move this ball out from under that bush with two swipes and then have them added to your score? That's fantastic. So Royal Liverpool, God bless them, improves upon the rule. Rule, sorry. Similar rule, your opponent was allowed three strokes to make <laughs> your ball playable, and you would add those three strokes to your score. However, if he failed to obstruct the ball from the area, he would then have to add those strokes to his own score. Ah, even better. So in the St. Andrews scenario, there's no penalty yeah. if you don't move it. Right. The but RNA, this... you got a bunch of schleps out yeah, that... there trying to move a ball. <laughs> no. And you know what? We're, we're going to slow down play, folks. I'm taking these two swipes no matter what. Yeah, now, all wild. of a sudden, it becomes a question of strategy. Yeah. Can I really get that ball out? And am I willing to take a three-stroke gamble on my own score That's fantastic, to do so and it? fail? Yeah. And this would be mostly match play, these scenarios would unfold? Those would happen in either play. Either. That's either how I read it. That's right, how I okay. play. It is not specific to that. When do we see the change over to more stroke play than perhaps? Because match play, of course, is predominantly the, the form of golf for much of the early history. When do we sort of start to see stroke play become prominent? You know, stroke play, I think, you know, I think you could look at the Open Championship in 1860 probably goes a very mm-hmm. far way to make it popular for determining a champion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you were to ask that question on any given day, on any given links in Scotland, match play still may be yeah. the popular form of play. At club level, probably. Yeah. yeah. It remain that way. Now, I recall I played at Presswick many years ago, 1997. Well, that would make me, oh, that's no good. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, I mean, 1997. And as I understand it, they would, they'd sit around a long table in the clubhouse, which was across the road from the course, drinking claret and various other things prior to the goal. Yeah. And, and matches would Lions. be determined. Red Lion. The Red Lion, by the way. Right. It's, it's now a bar. If you ever go to Presswick and you don't go into the Red Lion, just defriend me now. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know what, you're no longer yeah. welcome to subscribe you're to the podcast. To me. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. But if I understand it, Connor, Tommy, did they not determine who would play against who via the distribution of playing cards? So the two king, two kings would... Play against kings. Are you familiar with this story? I'm sure this is I what they told us when we were there. That, oddly enough, no, I've never heard that. So there was no, right. yeah. So there was no. This is me and John. We played together every week. It was like everybody sat around. It's like they dished out the cards. You turned your card over, and Jack of Hearts played against Jack of Spades, or whatever the the combination might be. How good would that be in the modern era? What a fantastic way! Similar. And you play against that person. I think you worked out your own handicaps. 
as well. So there was some strategy about how much re- uh, claret you would have before the negotiation and all that sort of thing. Yeah. It was, it was cru- yeah. crucial to get the right number of strokes to have a chance to win. That's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? It's uh, what a and and again, it goes back to this point. Much of the adventure of the game, even we can just see it in these rulings. Much of the adventure of the game has been homogenised, hasn't it? I'm not convinced that's necessarily always to the good of the game. Similarly, yeah, I think I, I love. I mean, listen, I love local rules. I, when you look through these old rules, and we're, by the way, folks, we're only touching on a fraction of oh. these great rules. Um, I, I mean, hitting some of the highlights that are specific to things that we see today. Uh, but there are great ones. I'll, I'll give you a great one off the top of my head. Um, prior to 1899, there was no out-of-bounds rule. Yes, this is interesting, isn't so it? So we touched upon that, right? Yeah. Uh, we touched upon that a little bit with Musabra and the, and the invention of the brassy hitting off of the stone uh, stone, the stone roads. That's right. right? Um, and if, if you were to really take a snapshot here, um, I'm going to get the year wrong. I did not write it down. And I want to say, I think it was 1950 to 1952. That sounds wrong. Could be 1850, 1852. So folks, I want you to double check this, but if you're playing with your buddies and you're a bogey golfer and you're playing on a course that has out of bounds on your left and right, I think this is still 1950, 1952. I'm going to stick with that for now is uh, the rules of golf between those two years allowed you to hit a ball out of bounds and you would go back to re-tee without Without the stroke penalty. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say that might have been 1960 to 62 because I'm 100% convinced that Arnold Palmer hit a ball out of bounds in the US Open of 1962, perhaps on day three, maybe even day four late in the round, and re-teed without penalty. Okay. At uh, well, was, it, was it sixty two? Kurt Sampson wrote the book, The Eternal Summer, and we did the book club episode with Mike Clayton about the book. And I'm fairly certain it was sixty two, and I'm sure that he hit a ball out of bounds in that U.S. Open and got to re- take the penalty. Got to re yeah. without penalty. It was only a two year period. Yeah, that's right. And it was yeah, and it was it was. And the thing about it, I remember being amazed at the time was it was only in play, well not amazed it was only in play for about two years um yeah and then of course they changed it and look at can you imagine if we tried to bring that back the the harping at my own club which hasn't introduced the new out of bounds local rule where you can drop mm-hmm. on the fairway in line with where it right. went out under right. the the carping about that has been unbearable at my club yeah. where they didn't adopt it can you imagine what it must be like at some of the clubs that did just oh, I can, I can only imagine. Then imagine, right? then imagine suggesting, well, why don't we just get rid of the out-of-bounds rule altogether, just re-tee it and hit again, no penalty. Yeah, <laughs> let's just do this again. It's, no it's worries. A, good enough for Arnold Palmer, good enough for us. That, yeah. So I, I guess everything's been tried is kind of the point, isn't it? Just about when it comes to the rules of golf. Everything has I, been tried. I think yeah. they've been tweaked enough. And I, I'd say this. I know we were talking about the, uh, the knee-high drop. Um, I'll say this. I think... I'm going to make a history prediction, which I can be wrong because I only think about the history. So uh, my guess is that a couple years from now, the knee-high drop rule will be part of this list of no longer existing no, rules. No longer existing. Do you think we will go to – because the knee-high drop really is a compromise between the drop yeah. from the shoulder and the re-drop and just placing it, which a lot of people yeah. aren't happy with that idea. Do you, which way do you think – will we go back to dropping from the shoulder or will we move to a situation where you just place the ball? I'm going to venture a guess, and my guess would be that the player option is going to be to be able to drop it from anywhere from knee height to shoulder height. Mm. So 
That's, I mean, that's my thought. I don't think we'll be placing it. I really no, don't. I, I can't see the placing getting up either. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I think it goes against all of us as golfers think, wouldn't that be nice? But hang on, that's going to be for him too. And yeah. I, and I don't you like know, that. You don't think of the knee-high drop as an issue until you see it on TV. And you know and why? And you realize Connor? how it's silly looking. That's the issue. I tell you why it's silly looking, Connor. Because professional golf seems to have made the decision that they are going to try to make it look silly by insisting on trying to drop the ball from their side, which is not how the human spine is designed to yeah. bend. Yeah, if you just stood point. back and bent forward like you do when you tee up the ball, it doesn't look silly at all and achieves so exactly a, a form, the same thing. A form of protest, is that where you're going at? I think, I don't know why people would automatically assume that you need to bend to the side to drop from knee yeah. height. In fact, you can keep your legs straight and bend forward till your hand is in line with your knee quite easily, even if you've got a bad back. If you can tee up a yeah, ball, you can take so, a knee-high drop. So all of this I, nonsense you know, about the dropping, I, whether it's a spoken or unspoken conspiracy, I reckon it's a conspiracy to make it look stupid, and that's unnecessary. Well, I, and I think Bryson probably has a, a statistics for us. We should probably get him on the podcast to give <laughs> no him doubt. the best way to drop a golf ball from knee height. He would have because cal- I, I guarantee he's thought it through. Yeah, he would have, and he would have calculated the velocity difference between when it goes from <laughs> knee height or where the shoulder yeah. height. And if it goes That's to right. between the knee and the shoulder, he'll have a fixed point marked on his shirt, which will be exactly the perfect right. point to oh, drop it, it from. Yeah, indeed. No, so I think the right. knee height drop. I mean, I, I agree. I'm not convinced that it's a great idea, but I can understand what they were trying to do. But this does seem to have been a decision taken to try to make it look as silly as possible because people yeah. don't like it. Next time you drop a ball, just just bend forward like you're teeing up. All you got to do is take a step back so you're still behind the line, no closer to the hole. Um, and that way you also don't risk dropping it on your foot, which yeah. you do when you drop yeah, from the I'm side. I'm thinking the opposite now. I'm going to try to bend over back. Yeah, <laughs> well, technically, and this has been you know, raised, technically you if you want to, you can lie on the ground and hold your arm in the air as long as its final point before you drop is knee height. There's no rules well, I about. I don't think that's the case. I think there is a. I think it is knee height. I I, I don't know this for sure. I don't think it has to be dropped not, from the knee. It has to be knee. I think it's height. supposed to be where your knees would be because I believe this got into the crouching. Because if you crouched, your knee was close to the ground. That's right. So that's why. So knee height, believe, not from yeah, the knee. Believe, yeah. So you can yes, crouch from where your knee would be. Yeah, you can crouch and drop it yeah. from knee height. So you can lie on the ground and drop it from knee height. You can hang out of a tree. I would imagine. Should you want to, and drop it from knee height. Or you can bend over sideways and make yourself look like a goose on international television as long as you drop it from knee height. Or you could do what I do, Connor, and I do take regular drops. Just bend (laughs) bend forward from the hips and drop it from knee height. Really simple. There's a little tip. I don't have a lot of golf tips. There's one for all the folks out there. Now, did we cover your favorite crazy rule or ruling and all that? That's the last thing I had on my list before we go to local. Yeah, I think we can jump into... uh my, I'd say my favorite local local rules. rules. This one I love because the scope here they, is fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's just so good, folks. I mean, I can't even I can't tell you how good this is about to be. So, the uh, first local rules are from war, wartime rules, if we'll call them. Nineteen forty one. They are from the Richmond Golf Club. These were temporary rules Where's for Richmond? wartime effort. Where's Richmond? Uh, Richmond is in, I believe, Sussex, right, England, so London, England. Yeah, London, England. Yes. So, uh, rule number one. Players are asked to collect bomb and shrapnel splinters <laughs> to save these, causing damage to the mowing machines. That's rule number one. There you go. Fill divots. You are, please pick up bomb fragments. <laughs> Fill your divots with sand and pick up bomb fragments while you're about it. You know, folks, they only get better from here. <laughs> number two, in competitions, 
during gunfire, or while bombs are falling. Players may take shelter without penalty for ceasing play. That's a real rule. That is a, listen, folks, if you've never gone over to the UK, this is your reason. These folks are diehard. They're willing to take shrapnel. They're willing to take bullets. Damn it, you're not going to stop them from playing golf. That is, you're going to England. Everyone on here, you haven't been there. I'm pointing at you right now. You can't see me. I'm pointing at you. You, sir. You and you, ma'am. You there, too? You're going to England. They're amazing. The generosity of that is just staggering, isn't it? Oh, it's, I mean, thank you. Thank you. Right? I was going to get shot. I'm going to take right. a little break yeah, here. That's right. Uh, you know, damn you soldiers, if you take my ball out of play, I don't think there's one of those. Oh, my God, there is. Never yeah. mind. Okay. Uh, number three, the position of known delayed action bombs are marked by red flags at any reasonable but not guaranteed safe distance therefrom. <laughs> So in other words, bomb drops from the sky, folks, makes a crater, did not go off. We'll put some red flags down, which may or may not be the safe zone to drop your ball from. Wow. I'm just I'm honestly I'm honestly trying to think. Can you imagine playing a round of golf where those rules were actually in play? What that means? Yeah. Like, it's, really? You know, that's funny terrifying. Laugh, yeah. At the same time. God bless these Yeah, folks. absolutely. Absolutely. God bless you. You know, you cannot rain, sleet, snow, shrapnel, gunfire, bombs exploding. We're playing golf today, folks. Yep. We have a tea time. That's right. <laughs> but there's a war right, on. So, so? Yeah, it's a war on. Yeah, yeah I mean, you got to play. Um, number four, shrapnel and or bomb splinters on the fairways within one club length of the ball may be moved without nice. penalty. Nice. And no penalty shall be incurred. If a ball is thereby caused to move accidentally, I assume by accidentally that the bomb goes off. Right. <laughs> it's not. It's not well said there, but that's. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm gonna we're gonna go into that because actually the next rule goes right in there. So I made that joke like, "Damn you if you know the Germans move or take my golf ball." It actually covers that in rule number five. A ball moved by enemy action may be replaced. Or, if lost or destroyed, I'm assuming by a bomb, a ball may be dropped not near to the hole without penalty. Again, thank you for not allowing me to take that penalty. I really appreciate that. that, This suggests that whilst there's bullets and bombs whizzing by on the golf course, one of them hits your ball, you don't stop playing. You take a drop and move move on. You know, they're already giving you time to take cover and come back. And if they picked up your ball... You know, just take the free drop. You're yeah, fine. Yeah, You're fantastic. absolutely fine. There you go. Uh, number six, a ball line in a crater may be lifted and dropped not near the hole, preserving the line to the hole without penalty. Oh, that's Again, nice. that's – I mean, it's an obvious rule, right? Well, of course. Now, I, I wonder what happens when an ordinate falls into a bunker. Ooh. Right. And then all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, yeah, now that's right. You know, what yeah. do we do here? I think there's a judgment call. Maybe you call in the secretary and you know, he makes. <laughs> um, finally, we'll go into the last rule of wartime play. A player whose stroke is affected by simultaneously explosion of a bomb may play another ball. Penalty one stroke. <laughs> that's what not, the hell? That's not what, what the hell just happened here? I'm reading that again. I, I got it. There's no way a player. Whose stroke is affected? So he's in the middle of a stroke. Bomb goes off. Obviously, there is a bomb that explodes. May play another ball, but you, sir, have a penalty. You may not have an arm, but you have a penalty (laughs) of one stroke. I'm sorry. I'm quitting the Richmond Club, folks. 
If, folks, if you're a member and you're listening to the Richmond Golf Club, which, by the way, still exists. Still exists. Fantastic. First of all, thank them for these rules, right? I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you. Second of all, please protest rule number seven. Yeah, that's right. That is <laughs> not appropriate. There's an element on the fence. goes so, yeah. off my backswing. Although I guess you could say if the precedence was Caddyshack, the ball did fall and they count it. Ten-second rule, by the way, was probably elapsed, so it was probably a penalty. But that's another story. But dear, dear. Yes. Thanks. So those are my favorite wartime rules. Now we're going to go into rules that still exist today. Ooh, okay. And, folks, we're going to do a separate podcast uh, on one of my favorite all-time golf clubs in the United States. It is also one of the most exclusive. At uh, I, I don't think it's known to the public how many members they have, but it's rumored that they only have 50 members. Wow. And this is Lake Zurich Golf Club. And this is in Lake Zurich, Illinois, suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, 50 members. The course was built, I believe, in 19, or I'm sorry, 1896. I think James Fallis bit it, built it, but I'm going off the top of my head. And this is one of the few golf courses in the United States that is unchanged since the time of the gutty. Wow, nine so, holes, eight, eight holes. Nine holes, nine holes. Wow. I believe it's 2,600 yards. Wow. So it's a very good buddy ball distance. I, at one point, knew a member. I need to see if he's still there because if he is, he's definitely treating me to a round at Lake Zurich, <laughs> especially now, after you hear these rules. Not now that you're a famous podcaster. There's no way oh, you're yeah. going to get on there. Yeah. yeah my, but, my mom calls me famous. That's let, about as far as it goes. Let's hear the rules. So we're gonna. I'll give you a little bit of uh, feedback on Lake Zurich, just to give you an idea how awesome they are. So Lake Zurich founded in 1896, and in 1912, and I shared this story a little bit on the podcast. Just this is the ingenuity and brilliance of their membership. This is the national lampoon of country clubs. So they are jokesters. They're funny. They're witty writers. They're lawyers, and they are brilliant. In 1912, the country club or the railroad attempted to condemn part of the property so they could annex the land so a railroad track could be driven right through the middle of Lake Zurich Golf Club. And in those days, if the railroad made that decision, folks, that was you're done. Yeah. You're done. They eminent domain, they take over, forget about it. Not so at Lake Zurich. Lake Zurich and the brilliant minds within decided to incorporate the property, the entire property, as a cemetery. And in the middle of the night, in 1911, they buried four bodies on the property. And you know what, folks? You can't condemn a cemetery. Cemetery. Good Lord. The bodies still to this very day reside on the property. Wow. Though they've been moved so not to be disturbed. And they may be the most important members of Lake Zurich. Yeah, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Wow. So, yeah. Think, think about that, folks. If the... Uh, City decides to condemn your land yeah. to uh, eminent domain, <laughs> bury dead body. Shoot a couple of members, and and uh, in a funny way, you know, it, it's the same sort of crazy commitment in a different way that the wartime rules tell us yeah. exist about golf, isn't it? You, you, you're so yeah. committed to your golf club, and you that you're prepared to do that. That's amazing, isn't it? Wow, fantastic! It's amazing, and and and, and the the tradition lives on. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a series of rules. We don't have a lot of them, but they're so good, I can't. I can't stop the podcast and we talk about them. Rule number one, very simple. Don't take the game too seriously. Right? I mean, that's a rule. That is oh, that's actually the rule. Don't take the that game too seriously. Oh, Don't take the game too seriously. Where do I sign? Um, could have used that about a couple years ago, but yeah. uh, I, I have it now. I'm trying to use it now. Uh, rule number two, 
here's where we get into the genius of Lake Zurich. And I'm, I'm sure after this airs, there's going to be thousands of people or thousands of listeners that we have out there, uh, with the exception of my mom, will be calling Lake Zurich to see if they can join. <laughs> That's right. There shall be no th- such thing as a lost golf ball. The missing ball will eventually be found and pocketed by some other player, in which case it becomes a stolen ball. There is no penalty for a stolen ball. That is a rule, folks. Fantastic. I could, I would, if I was, if I wasn't afraid of breaking my mic, I would literally drop it there. Oh, that is fantastic. You can't, you can't lose a ball; it's going to be stolen. I'm, I might argue right. that in the. I got the monthly medal on Saturday. I might argue that if that happens, well, it can't be lost. Someone's going to find it. Someone's going to find it. It's going to be a stolen. And I, that that's point. right. And I know that's going to happen because it's going to turn up in the second hand bin in the pro shop and I'll be able to identify it by buying marks. And that's going to be the proof well, that it's stolen. To that point, uh, I used to have uh, custom stamped on my b- golf balls, uh, return to sender, and I had my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so if I saw it, we could, we, you know, I, I'd claim it. I never did. Uh, that uh, is, all right. Uh, Rule number three. Yep. If a putt stops close enough to the cup to inspire such comment as, you could blow it in. You may blow it in. <laughs> the rule does not apply if the ball is more than three inches away from the hole. We have no wish of making a travesty of this game. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I respect you the traditions. It yeah. It's good. But if, if it's outside of three inches, you're making a joke of the game, folks, that, if you try to blow it in. So that's right. No, that is not hope. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, the next rule. A ball sliced or hooked into the rough shall be lifted and placed at a point equal to the distance it carried into the rough. It is hardly fair to penalize a player for the erratic flight of a golf ball. (laughs) Now, that's the one that could catch on, isn't it? You know, the problem is the guys I play with regularly, they seem to think that we're members of Lake Zurich. (laughs) Their ball's always in the fairway. It's always in a good lie. There's never dirt on it. Sorry, folks. Uh, yes, I'm talking about you, John Ostrab. Uh, we all know what you're up to. Fantastic. And then finally, the last rule, and yeah. uh, we'll kind of conclude the rules before we go into viewer questions. A ball hitting a tree shall be deemed not to have hit a tree. Hitting a tree is incontrovertible proof of bad luck, <laughs> a phenomenon which obviously has no, no place in this oh. scientific game. <laughs> A player should estimate the distance the ball would have traveled under reasonable circumstances and play the ball from that point, preferably from a nice, firm tuft of grass. That's fantastic. That's perfect. Incontrovertible in proof. Yeah. A ball hitting a tree shall be deemed not to have hit a tree oh, because it's incontrovertible truth proof of bad luck, bad luck. A phenomenon which obviously has no place <laughs> In a scientific game. That is just Folks, I rest my case. Yep. If you are not thinking about joining Lake Zurich, again, defriend me. Where this, do I sign? It has sign? to be the greatest yeah. golf club in the history of time. That is absolutely brilliant. I love it. That is fantastic. And are they, are they the only rules that govern play? I can't see that you'd need any more. That covers pretty much everything, doesn't it? I think we hit a lot of them, yeah, right? A ball that's lost, that. a, a ball that's in the rough, a ball that's close to the hole, and a ball that's hit a tree. That's your no, standard Saturday round of golf. Just short of falling, and then yeah. you could blow it in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Fantastic stuff. We might do some more on uh, on that club even, or clubs like it. Interesting golf societies maybe at some point if we can dig some up. Before we do that, though, let's get to some of the listener questions. As we said, we had the TG History hashtag out there, and a few people use it. We'll try and take these in um, date order that we receive them. So... Yeah. 
<clears throat> Will one seven nine three zero six at Will one seven nine three zero six asked on February nine. Hey guys, enjoying the first couple of weeks of the podcast. I'm curious about the history of course architecture. When did we start seeing man-made bunkers, roughed, defined fairways, water hazards, etc.? Hashtag TG history. Extra point for the hashtag TG history. When did we start to see people design? I guess quote unquote golf courses as opposed to them just being found, Connor. Well, we'll give a, a future plug here because I think we're going to dive into this in a future podcast. We have uh, Keith Cutton coming on in a future podcast to talk about the history and evolution of golf course architecture. So the evolution of golf, I think he'll get into a deeper dive on this subject. I don't want to take his thunder, but I wouldn't say that this gentleman started um, the movement, but I think you can certainly look at modern golf course architecture and frame it around one important man, which is a, a man that I bring up a lot of times, which is old Tom Morris. Old Tom. Um, old Tom certainly popularized uh, the the current rough structure, the bunker play, uh, hazards. Uh, he made changes to widen the fairway. Uh, obviously, he designed multiple courses, uh, including Muirfield and uh, Presswick, and enlarging the greens when they had more play in the gutty era as more and more people came to play. Uh, even in, there were times, I believe, um, I believe there's a story. I might misquote this a little bit because I'm going off the top of my head. But a, uh, a member of the RNA uh, was talking about Hell Bunker in front of old Tom Morris. And he was saying how easy with the newer equipment that he had or the new equipment he had purchased, how much easier it was <laughs> to get his ball out of Hell Bunker. And apparently that very night – uh, old Tom and a bunch of his henchmen went out and dug it and made it even nastier to play than it's ever been. And he, you know, he'd be damned if you're going to say that uh, this bunker is easy to play out of. Fantastic. So he was definitely um, he was a forefather in so many ways. The, the golf course superintendents out there, um, I think many of them know the importance of Old Tom Morris. And um, for instance, um, uh, I'm totally blanking. Sanding the greens. Ah, yes, sand and corning the greens. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, so in sanding the greens, though by accident, uh, old Tom Morris was actually taking some sand out to a bunker. I think it was the fourth, 14th hole at St. Andrews, but don't quote me on that in the old course. Uh, but he accidentally tipped it over on the green. Right. And in the effort of you know basically sweeping away the sand off the green, uh, a couple days later, he realized that the, it was a smoother surface, and the grass was actually growing uh, much faster in that area where the green had been sanded. And you know, he then popular, popularized what we do so often now, uh, sanding greens. Yeah, it's, a, it's the cure for most ills, the grass, isn't it? Sand. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think he would say, you know, a green needs sand to live. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Uh, terrific stuff there. February 10 from uh, TAC6 TAC. I think TAC6 TAC's name's actually Trevor, but he's at TAC6 TAC, T-A-K-6. T-A-K. When did women, women factor into golf on all sides of the ponds? I was just listening to episode two, and it made me wonder. I reckon there's a whole episode in this, probably, Connor. Did you find anything when you went looking about women on, in golf on yes, both sides of the pond? I did, and I will say this. So, yes, I am very interested in having a podcast that's uh, directly related to this. Uh, I think it would be even better if um, I can find – a uh, historian that is specific to uh, women in golf, but I'm going to give you a snapshot, if you will, my snapshot into the history of the game and women playing on both sides of the pond. So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the first written occurrence of a woman playing golf was Mary Queen of Scots, and that was in 1567. 
Um, beyond that, there were mentions of golf in 1738 at Brunsfield Links and in 1811 at Musabra of women's groups or women's clubs uh, playing golf uh, at those respective uh, links courses. So it was extremely frequent. It is um, – I'll rewind. We should, probably should have talked about this in the the whys of golf, but uh, there is this common misconception that golf is an acronym for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. Nothing Nonsense. can be further than the truth. Nonsense. Yeah. Absolutely. Just like eighteen holes in a whiskey bottle. Yeah. Completely false. Yeah. Um, and and we're going back to the fifteen hundreds to prove it. Yeah. Uh, and then the seventeen hundreds, and then the eighteen hundreds. So there is zero doubt that women have been playing this game. From as early on as there is written record. Uh, Now, if we fast forward a little bit uh, and we're crossing the pond here, um, I won't go to the first women who played golf uh, in the United States because I suspect it's going to be at Harleston Links, which was in the 1700s in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Have no proof, but that's my guess. But we can say in the very early days of what we call modern golf course um, modern golf courses or modern golf course architecture that in the uh, 1884 or 19, I'm sorry, 1894, Shinnecock actually had a course that was specifically Certainly dedicated for women. Yeah. For women. That's right. You mentioned that before, yeah. And uh, Shinnecock, which, by the way, we need to get a story from Shinnecock on the podcast because their history is well beyond the U.S. Open. They were one of the most progressive mm-hmm. uh, uh, country clubs in the world. Women could actually join the club without a husband. So a woman member could be a standalone member, which might be the first of its kind in the world in 1894. Some would say that is anarchy, Connor. They're people that ah. we don't want to hang around with. Um, yeah. I, I do think there's a full episode in that. I think you're right. But it, it's a good question, isn't it? And uh, Absolutely. Thank you for sending it in. Next one from uh, B. Hoover underscore N-E-O-H. Neo, I suppose. At, at B. Hoover underscore N-E-O-H. February 16. Can you do an episode on famous alleged, in brackets, cheating incidents throughout the history of the game? There is a whole episode in that, I'm sure, isn't there? Not to mention, uh, not just the cheating, but some great gambling stories of, uh, of golf. So we will come yeah. to that. We won't spend too much time on that now, but there's uh, unless you've got one that you particularly wanted to mention, no, there's a I, I whole. Think we'd, we'd be better off saving it. I, I think you know the only my only my only tiptoe there would be alleged. Yeah, <laughs> that, that word's very tricky yeah. because God, you know, everybody knows my that response of uh, on the Masters podcast. Um, you know, all of a sudden somebody's calling Arnold Palmer a cheater, uh, which by the way happened. I did. Um, yes, it's. Yeah, you get into a kind of a tricky situation there where if we, when we do the podcast, it won't be an if. When we do the podcast, we're going to take a very um, broad, broad spectrum there because I don't think we want to accuse anybody with all the facts because I think there's a lot of gray areas to what happened. But I think it's a great podcast. Yeah, there'll be some fun with it. Thank you for the session on that. We will get to that. February 20, Nick Watson goes by at Los Chinquos, I think I pronounced that, L-O-S-C-I-N-Q-U-O-S, Nick Watson. Uh, taking Grand Slams away for wins pre-1960s was argued quite well, but I have to follow. Up, I have a follow-up question. Were there championships being considered as majors that stood in the PGA and Masters places, and did the possibility of a Grand Slam exist for those playing pre-1960? That probably goes right to the heart of it in a lot of ways, doesn't it? And a lot of what uh, Jeff Martin was arguing about was yeah. the Western Open and some of those other tournaments that had those sort of major claims without necessarily being Grand Slam events. Yeah, and I think some of it might come down to semantics. Yeah. Right? I mean, 
Listen, there were, and I'll get into it in a second, but there were many tournaments that were called majors. Yeah. Uh, without a pure definition of a major as we know it today, which is a Grand Slam event, mm-hmm. um, or four in a year, or even looking at the uh, impregnable quadrilateral. Uh, so there were tournaments that were major tournaments. Uh, again, this is where Dr- Bill and I draw the line as with the difference between a major tournament and a major championship. Mm-hmm. But to answer that question, uh, no, not in their place. No. So if you're saying, did they stand in for the PGA? First of all, PGA was a major, so we don't <laughs> we don't need a stand in. Are you trying to have the last word here, Connor? I am getting I'll, the last I'll word. I'll get Bill back Bill, on if you're not careful. If he's going to argue with me, we'll never <laughs> let him on the podcast, even though I want him to come on for Harry Barden. You're out if you yeah. debate this. We're drawing the line. No. Um, they, they weren't in their place. However, there were too many tournaments that writers were calling majors. As many, by the way, and I put this on, on Twitter a little bit when responding to Jeff and others, as many as eight tournaments a year were considered majors. And this is the issue I have, is if every tournament is technically a major, then none of them are really that major. That's right. There are no majors. Yep. So that's why we only have the Olympics every four years. If we did it every year, they'd they'd just be, you know, world golf championships or something, wouldn't they? And so to that point, and I, I, I posted this pretty well, I think, but Walter Hagen, I posted a clipping from 1927, which said he had 24 majors yeah. at the time. Extraordinary. If you extrapolate the number of majors he played and won after 1927 by those standards, he would claim 31 majors. That's 20 more majors than he's given today. Indeed. And so, I, nobody would take that seriously, would they? I wouldn't think so. But again, you know, major tournaments, there wasn't a great definition. I, if you really want to draw a line in the sand, you could say there's no majors at all. <laughs> if you want to take the hard stance, yeah. which I would not. No. Um, the same goes with the Grand Slam. So a part, his second part of his question was, um, you know, was there anything before Arnold Palmer's, you know, quote, Grand Slam? Uh, the answer is yes. But again, it would, I would be nothing that I would call definitive. I would say that there were things that either players, their publicists, or their advertisers yeah. were trying to say to make a compelling story for their guy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and this is going back, so I'll give you two examples. Uh, in 1930, um, there was a newspaper article saying that Tommy Armour is attempting the Grand Slam, the professional Grand Slam, which, as I interpreted it, the interpret it from the article as being the Canadian Open, the PGA, and the U.S. Open. And, of course, he lost the U.S. Open to Bobby Jones. Um, so here we have the Canadian Open as a major. Not the Western, mind you. Um, mm. Not the North-South. Uh, but the Canadian Open, the PGA, and the U.S. Open, not including the Open Championship. And then Ben Hogan in 1948. And this is an article that um, that Jeffrey, Jeffy Golf posted. Uh I believe it was an advertisement, but don't quote me on that. Uh, I'm sure Jeffy will get into it. The Grand Slam in 1948 for Ben Hogan, I believe, uh, Jeffy is saying, the LA Open, the PGA, the US Open, and the Western. Now, again, I, I made a brief case for how you could argue that the Western Open was a major championship as a ruling body from 1899 to 1919 mm-hmm. before it uh, gave way to the US Open. Um, I think a very compelling argument for the Western not being an open was actually made by Bill Williams. And I have not fact checked this. So if it's wrong, uh, you know, yell at Bill, uh, but that Bobby Jones did not play in the Western open. Oh, okay. I have a hard time believing that anything <clears throat> is a major championship 
if Bobby Jones didn't play it at the doesn't time. consider a major championship. Yeah, indeed. Uh, let's so, uh, let's try and put the seal back on that can of worms because uh, uh-huh. it was fun. It was fun while it lasted, but it is a can of worms. Um, I'm sure that's not the last we'll hear of it. It's not the last we'll talk about it on the podcast. Last one no, question it's a for great the discussion. Uh, look, I, I agree. I think it really is. Um, and it's good to see that people are passionate about it. Last one. We must wrap this up. Question for the next Talking Golf History podcast. When did alternative scoring methods such as Stableford begin? And why didn't some simpler method of keeping scoring golf catch on? I'm not sure I understand the second part of that. but Yeah, you, I don't know if I can get into the second part. I'm going to hit the first part uh, in two parts. Uh, one, I think, is important. The other one could be damaging. Uh, so the stable first started in Wales, which is where my family hails from, by the way, or at least half of it, uh, by Dr. Frank Barney Gorton Stableford. Mm-hmm. Long name there, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1898, informally at, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Glamorganshire mm-hmm. Golf Club. I think I got that right. I'm, assu- uh, I'm assuming you got it wrong, but I have no yeah. evidence to suggest whether it was right or wrong, <laughs> so, so I'll make no comment. That, let's just say that was my best try yeah. at the name. <laughs> Uh, however, it was not put into competition until the Walsley Golf Club in 1932. Now, uh, Dr. Sableford was a member in both of those clubs. It essentially was set up as a scoring system that would allow a player not to give up on a round if he had two bad holes. He or she, I should say, had two bad holes. So I would say that is actually a very interesting scoring system from a player standpoint. Now, the one I'm going to jump into is really modern. I don't have a date to it. I did look for it. I did struggle finding it. And I'm sure some of those folks out there are going to uh, uh, post this, and it would be great if they did that. And that's the Masters Tournament. So many people may or may not realize this, but the Masters Tournament invented the method of tracking rounds using over par and, and under par yeah. method. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And the issue here, I, I would say from, from a, uh, a downside of that, is that I think nowadays more than any that we focus so much on what par. players are shooting under par. Yep. Well, they so live under par, par. They live under par. <laughs> yeah. If I shoot a 280, right? But if I shoot a 280 versus a 260, and we're only looking at from a strict number standpoint, it is, is it as glaring as, oh, gosh, he shot eight under par today. Mm-hmm. We need to make this course tougher. We should grow in the rough. We Ooh. should speed up the greens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should add more bunkers. It makes you par know, itself more of a, how much you are under over. It makes yeah. par this sort of very much focus on. Am I mistaken? Was it not Frank Chikinian who came up with that for the television? Yeah, I believe, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes. Because so, on television, obviously, it was, it was a nightmare, particularly given if you – now, did the Masters oh. have seeded groupings at the weekend or could you have had, for example, Hogan out early at six under par or at – it, well, his, his strokes would have just been tallied as they went, wouldn't he? He, he would have been at yeah, 200, think, 204, think, yeah. 207, to, yeah. and somebody else would have, but he would have been through 12 holes of the last round, and somebody else would have been at 198, but they were only through six holes of the last round. You right. can see why it would have been a nightmare for television, that sort yeah, of score. Especially system. in the television era, right? Yeah. That, that's when the Masters was a major. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the old days, I just I can't let it go. I, no, I don't know why. I get on the I get on the podcast and I just want to screw you know just twist the screw in a little bit more. No, it's, it's the microphone, Connor. It's a symbol of it power. Is. It's a symbol of power. I mean, it gives you the power. Damn. But uh, yeah, I would say I think you could argue that the measurement 
of par yeah. versus score has done some has been a detriment yeah. to some level of the game. I couldn't agree whether more. it's just the professional game. Couldn't agree more because of course there was a time before par where holes were just one shot, two shot, or three shot holes. That's what they were. Or bogey, bogey, or bogey holes was or par. Long yeah. holes. Or, now I don't know. I assume you know this, Connor, but Stableford is by far the predominant scoring system here in Australia. And many other parts know. of it. We don't, we don't play stroke play. We play stroke play once a month in Australia. It's a special occasion. It's called the monthly medal. So my monthly medal at Mangrove Mountain is on this Saturday, and we'll play stroke play. Uh, virtually every other competition we play is played at Stableford. Really? Uh, yeah, I absolutely. Did not know that. Yeah, absolutely. I did not know so, that. How about that? So, so all of our rounds are calculated in points. I mean, so 36 points is, is playing to your handicap. It's two points a hole. And so that's how you judge, you know, you say, how did you go? They say, I had 28 points. That's a terrible round of golf. I had 42 points. That's a fantastic round of golf because um, it's six under handicap or uh, eight over handicap, whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I mean, of the eight games a month that I play at Mangrove Mountain, six of them would be Stableford. Wow. One, yeah. one maybe part. And that's true of every golf club in this country. Uh, and I think you it's, know what? I think it's probably true in most clubs when they it's the stroke play form of the game. We play very little match yeah. play at the club level here in Australia, despite what most people outside of the UK will not seem to think. I don't think match play is as popular as certainly not here in Australia as people think it is. But it's stable, and that would be true from Royal Melbourne all the way to to Mangrove Mountain. Every Wednesday there'll be a Stableford comp. Every most Saturdays it'll be a Stableford comp. Sometimes it's a two ball, it's a team Stableford. Uh, but yeah, I would say ninety eight percent or ninety six percent of the rounds that I play. Uh, I played at, you know, what did you have? Four or two, five or one. You know, Rod, it makes complete sense to me because we all know that Australia is in the future. <laughs> You're the, one look, day ahead of me. You're always one the, day ahead of us. The, I, I will say this, whilst it can get a bit samey like any form of the game, the advantage of the stable, Stableford system is that only once a month do I have to watch one of the blokes I'm playing with rack up 11 shots on a hole because they can't get it across the water or... <laughs> Because in, under the Stableford system, if I've had six shots and I'm not on the green and I only get one shot, I'm out of the hole. I've already, yeah. I've already maxed out my head. Pick it up, go up to the green, tend the flag for the other blokes who are still in it, and then move on to the next. Um, well, to that point, I think uh, Lake Zurich is in that same kind of uh, field of play. They're not the Stableford, but you're picking that ball up and you're putting it wherever you want. Well, no, you pick it up and put it in your pocket. It's what you do. He's, he's not taking 11. No, he's not taking a letter. He, he, he takes what we call a wipe. He makes no points on the That's hole, right. which is yeah. why the modified Stableford system that the professionals play, I'd like to see that. I think a lot of Australian fans and people who play predominantly Stableford would like to see them just play actual Stableford because you yeah. could very much relate to the scores and you'd know that if somebody had 44 points, 44 points off scratch is eight under par. Yeah. It's not, it's not as yeah, simple as eight under par because you might have some four-pointers and three-pointers. I mean, the, the predominant scores are, you know, they have three points, two points, or one point. That's, you know, you have a net birdie, a net par, or a net bogey, and that's three points, two points, or one point. So if we, if we saw them play at, at that format, I don't know why they do the modified stuff, but I find it hard to follow and uninteresting. Um, whereas there's a whole country would see that, you know, if Jeff Ogilvy had 42 points in the first round of the what was it, the Barbasol or whatever it might be, they go, oh, that's a good round of golf. Six under, 42 yeah. points, there you go. But, uh, yeah, Whereas so I look like, at it, where I, lo- I look at it, it's foreign to me. Yeah, of course. It, it takes yeah. Just, a week I, we, I, to get I've used never, to. I don't think I've ever played in a Stableford really? scoring. 
Really? I don't think I ever have at any uh, club I've ever belonged to. Well, there you go. It moves the game along. Um, and as I said, I can it's, imagine. it's the absolute. Right. It's like match play, too. If you're out of the hole, just pick it up. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, and it, what, the other thing it does, it, it's very simple for beginners to understand, funnily enough, because it, it, it's very simple to explain. If you're, off, if you're off a handicap of 18, then you, know, you get one extra shot every hole. So every par three is a par four for you. Every par four is a par five for you. Every par five is a par six for you. You're lost, and you're not even a beginner. I've completely not no, made no, my point no. there. I'm swimming, swimming. Come to uh, come to Australia one day. I'll teach you how to play. Come to the Barnburgle Dunes trip. I'll teach you how to play <laughs> how to play Stableford. So, what do you, you play off about four? Don't you four or five or something? Yeah, four. If if I'm lucky, somebody will give me no. an eight. Okay. <laughs> if, if they're not playing you for money enough about all that that's got nothing to do with history in the sense that uh it's really more about what goes on now connor i think we've just about done it i don't think i missed any questions but i know there's been a bunch of people making suggestions for future episodes which is fantastic you put the call out yes. and people are interested and i won't say that we'll get to all of them because if we did we'd already have a year's worth of podcasts backed and, and up we're to trying do, to build we'll, a year but that's why i asked but right? yeah we'll, we'll get to some won't we I, there's no question yes, about it there's definitely. been some fantastic suggestions so hey, by the way i I'll say there has not been a suggestion yet that hasn't wowed me. They're that good. Yeah, I agree. I would say all of them. Yep. All, every single every single suggestion I've received thus far, yep. I've said, yes, we need to do that. Yep. Exactly. So thank you so much because, you, folks, you may not realize how much we value you as the listeners, not just because you're listening to this podcast, but the ideas that you're giving me are even outside of the box that I would even think of. Uh, you know, I might think of it four years from now, but I mean, just it's it's so great to have, you know, 20 guys out there, 20 ladies out there, 20 kids out there for all I know that are saying, you know what, I'd really like to hear the history of, you know, Bobby Jones That's or right. I mean, I'd, I'd figure that one. But there are a lot of so, so many different options that. They're fascinating to me, and I think every single suggestion has been mind-blowingly good. Couldn't agree more. And it shows people are interested, and that's kind of what it's all about. And and the other person who thanks you, listeners, for that is Mrs. Lewis, because all of this research keeps Connor out of her hair. And for that, so she's eternally grateful. <laughs> so true. And she sees me. By the way, folks, I don't – some of this you may know, but um, basically every night, and I mean seven days a week, I probably spend – I'd say four to six hours researching just golf. I just love reading golf. And my wife literally looks over and she's like, what are you doing? And I'll be like, oh, I'm looking at the uh, book of rules from the original book of rules from uh, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers in the 1700s. And she'd be like, okay, then. I'm just going to turn on Netflix and yeah. God one, bless her. One day she'll she stop asking Connor. <laughs> yeah, she'll just, I mean, she knows. She she'll just, know. It's a roll of the eyes, folks. Yeah, indeed. It's a roll of the eyes. We're all familiar with that. Connor, it's been more fun than it should have been. Lovely to catch up with you again. Two weeks before we do our next one. I don't think we've have we set our I don't think we've set our topic for the next one yet, have we? Although it'll be revealed between now and uh Yeah. And then, so. I, I'm kind of in between topics around. I, I have a I, I've got a couple ideas, but okay. we're gonna keep that in the back pocket till we Make a final decision. Keep an eye on Twitter, folks, at S-Historians for Connor and at Rod underscore Morrie for me. Don't forget with those questions, hashtag TG History. I'm sure that you'll be trawling that hashtag in the search function, as will I. Connor, been great to have you along today. Look forward to catching up again next time. Thank you so much, Rod. And again, thank you to everyone out there, uh, all the Twitter followers, Facebook followers, Instagram followers. We really couldn't do this without you. I guess we could, but we'd be talking to ourselves. Kind of uh, dumb, wouldn't we? If we were yeah. just doing it for ourselves, I probably wouldn't record it. 
You know, to be honest with you, Rob, there may be a glitch in the matrix and all these thousands of people that are listening to us. If there's really one person, it's my mom. Yeah, so it's good. entirely possible. Yeah. Thank you, Mrs. Lewis. We appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Episode four of the Talk Golf History podcast in the books. Hope you've enjoyed listening as, long, as much as we've enjoyed talking. We will be back to do it all again in two weeks' time here on the Talk and Golf History podcast.